Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Now let's look at verses 23 and 25. This sort of coincides with verses 9 through 12, 23 through 25. Verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully. Now, who's that talking about? Is it talking about a, a man in history who destroyed wonderfully? I mean, the Bible talks about the Antichrist and says he, he blasphemes against God wonderfully. He destroys wonderfully. It, these are all descriptions of the Antichrist. It doesn't fit Antiochus Epiphanes. He may have been destructive, and no one doubts that. And shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy uh, the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy, uh, also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. When did that happen to Antiochus Epiphanes? It didn't. He didn't stand against the Messiah or against Jesus Christ, unless you try to say he, he just didn't believe in him or, you know, it, you'd have to allegorize it in some way and, and it just doesn't fit. So um, th- this is the time of the end. That's what we're talking about. It's what we're being pointed towards. We're not, we're not talking about something that happened in the past or previously. Uh, the confusion comes from the admixture of prophetic events that are future to Daniel and historical to us, such as the coming of Persia, then of Grecia. But the passage's context and purpose are to focus on the time of the end and the Antichrist. The idea is revealed to Daniel, the future of the Jews, as well as their inevitable dealings with the Antichrist. The revealing of the Persian and Grecian empires are means to this end. The only reason we we talk about these two at all is to help get us here to to the little horn, to the Antichrist. That's the only reason for being mentioned in the chapter. Now, um, 
The Antichrist will come from a remnant of the Grecian Empire. According to Daniel 11, according to Isaiah, it will be Syria. Hence the focus that Isaiah places on God breaking the Assyrian. The Assyrian will stand against Christ, but he will be broken. Furthermore, according to Isaiah, Israel's future blessings are connected to the destruction of the Assyrian. Look at, look at Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, read verses 24 and 25. Verse 24. The Lord, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That's always true of God. He, whatever he decides he's going to do, it will be done. Without, without question. Verse 25, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and upon my mountains, tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon the nation. So he's going to break the Assyrian and set Israel free. Right now to verse 10. And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. All right, so hence Yibi's question. If this was not angels, what would it be? Anybody? What would happen if one star, a real star from heaven, an actual star, was cast down on earth? What would happen to earth? It would be destroyed. So it's not a physical star. It's an angel. Look at Revelation 1. Revelation 1 and verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Uh, the stars are angels, and they're often, they're numerous times in the Bible, they're used in this way. Uh, they're talked about in this way as, as being representative of the angels. And Daniel, they're being cast down by the Antichrist, which means he is, this is not some king from the past. This is, this is an extraordinary man. There's something about this man that he's able to cast down the stars of heaven. Um, I mean, dealing with one, we, we, we've read repeatedly in Daniel 10, one angel trying to get to Daniel had to fight through the prince of Persia and the prince of Grecia and deal with those and he struggled with that and had to call Michael to come help him. But here we have a man who's able to cast down the stars of heaven, who's able to take part of the stars. And, and I don't know if he calls them to come with him or if he, if he is forcibly bringing them down. Look at Revelation 12. And we'll read verses 3 and 4. Verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. 
And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Does any of that sound familiar? We're, we're constantly talking about this, this kingdom that will have ten kings. Now, this is a reference to the devil, but, but still points us back to that, that, that kingdom with ten kings. Verse 4, and his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven. So he took the burning rocks in heaven and drug them down with his tail. <laughs> right? Or the stars or something else. And behold, a great red dragon, or verse 4, and, and his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before a woman which was ready to be delivered for to deliver uh, for, for to deliver her child as soon as it was born. Look at verses 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. All right, so this, this event takes place, and he draws a third of the stars of heaven with him. And that, that's, of course, a reference to angels. Um, unless he can trick the stars in heaven into following him down to earth, then those are definitely something other than, than burning balls of gas out in the universe. These, these, these are angels. Uh, Satan is cast down from heaven. He loses access to heaven. At the same time, the Antichrist rises to great authority. This all takes place in the midst of the week. So you have Satan in heaven. He's cast down, and by that, it, it, Satan has the ability to, to go back and forth, as we know from Job and other passages in the Bible. He's going to be cast down and not allowed. He's, he's, he's restricted to the earth. He cannot leave the earth anymore at this point uh, once he's cast down. He brings a third of the, of, the, of the angels down with him. And as this is happening, the Antichrist breaks the covenant, which starts the second half of the, of the tribulation and the 2,300 days. He takes away the daily sacrifice, sets up the... the um, the abomination of desolation, and we go from tribulation to great tribulation. The tribulation, the first half of the time of Jacob's trouble, is God breaking the seals and raining his wrath down. The second half is Satan angry that he's been kicked out of heaven, and now he's, he's, he's confined to earth, and he's pouring out his anger. And so we go from tribulation to great tribulation. Satan is forcefully restricted to earth and begins to work through the Antichrist, giving him greater power on earth. Uh, tribulation, great tribulation is the result. Look at verse 11. Yea, he magnified himself. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now let's look at the daily sacrifice. Look at Numbers 28. 
Numbers 28, and let's read verses 3 through 4. And thou shalt say unto them, This is the offering made by fire, which ye shall offer unto the Lord, two lambs of the first year without spot, day by day, for a continual burnt offering. The one lamb shalt thou offer in the morning, and the other uh, lamb shalt thou offer at the evening. So they were, they were to give this offering, it had to be day by day, morning and evening. This is what the Antichrist is going to take away. He's going to force to cease. Look at First uh, Chronicles 16, and we'll see another mention of it. First Chronicles chapter 16. Verses 39 and 40. And Zadok the priest and his brethren the priests before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was in Gibeon to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord upon the altar of the burnt offering continually morning and evening and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord which he commanded Israel. So... There's that daily offering. But then in Hosea, look at Hosea 3. This will help us with the context of the coming of the Antichrist, or at least provide some helpful information. Hosea 3 and verse 4. Excuse me, 4, Hosea, yeah, Hosea 3, 4. Is that what I want? Yeah, yeah, Hosea 3, 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without a teraphim. So you talk to a Jew now and you ask them, how, how are you obeying the law of Moses? What do you do? You can't give a sacrifice. You can't go to the temple. You go to the temple, there's a mosque sitting there. You go to the temple and tell them you want to sacrifice unto Jehovah. <laughs> See how that goes. Let me know how that works out. Right? And so what's going to happen is this man is going to come on the scene who said, I can restore your temple. And with that will come sacrifices to your God. I'll tell you what, I'll... I'll I'll make a covenant with you for seven years. How's that sound? And they're going to do it. They're going to, because they're, they're, they're going all this time with no sacrifice, no king, no prince. They have nothing that, that would help you to recognize them as Israel, as defined by God. I mean, they like to call themselves Israel, but there's nothing about them today that, that would make you think that this is Israel. And so God said, you're going to exist many days without this. But then comes a man who says, I can, I can help you restore this. I can move those Muslims off that mount and give you your temple back. And they say, where do we sign? <laughs> and they sign. And then three and a half years into it, he breaks the daily sacrifice, sets up the abomination of, de- of desolation. And, uh, and it, it doesn't go well from there.
the Antichrist comes to power as someone who promises to restore Israel's sacrifice in the temple. Then a seven-year covenant is made, only to be broken halfway through. Verse 12. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Now, the, if you look at verse 10, 11, and 12, and you'll see verse 10, and it waxed great even to the host of heaven, talking about those stars, or, or the um, uh, all references, a host is a, is a large collection of, of people in this context. Um, I know some people read this and they say, see, that's, that's Roman Catholicism. It's not that kind of host. Who, who, who was a Catholic before they were saved? Anybody? Nobody in this room? Wow, I'm surprised. You, were, you, you had to have been a Catholic. You weren't a Catholic? You just don't want to admit it? <laughs> um, so when they, when they eat that wafer, when they, when they go through the process of, of you know, transubstantiation, whatever they call it, whatever stupid name they've given it, that they call that wafer that they turn into the body of Jesus somehow, magically, a host. And so people try to make a correlation here between this host and that host, but I don't think that's what this is talking about. This is talking about that large group of people who just came down from heaven with Satan, and it looks like they're assisting the Antichrist. Um, if you read verse 12 again, and, and an host was given him against the daily sacrifice. So it looks like this host of people is helping prevent the daily sacrifice. He's taking it away, and who's going to go in past a bunch of angels and stop it or force it to happen? Nobody. I don't, not at this point, not at this time. It'll take Jesus Christ to come back and fix that. Uh, the, he's the prince of the host in verse 11. So he, he's not the prince of a wafer. I mean, that, that makes no sense. He's the prince of a host, a large group of people. And, and potentially, if the host is connected to what we've just read, then, and, and, he, and if he's brought, if he had, as we read earlier, he had a role in bringing down these angels. Uh, the stars from heaven, then he's the prince of a host. He's, he's this captain over these, these beings or people, whatever they are. And um, they're helping him prevent that daily sacrifice from taking place. The host was given against the daily sacrifice. It looks as though the Antichrist has formed an army of, of a large group of people, maybe from the host of heaven that was cast down with Satan. And they assist him in standing against the daily sacrifice. I mean, if you, you get the Jews are a pretty rough group of people, and if you go to Orthodox, if you go to Israel to the areas that have Orthodox Jews there, and you tell them they can't practice their religion, you're probably not walking out of there. <laughs> it's not going to go well, and so you get this guy who says, "No, I'm taking away the sacrifice." He's going to have to have some <laughs> some people with him. Um, though he could probably handle it on his own. I don't know that he requires the assistance, but he has it, it looks like. He's got a whole host of people there with him. Um, and so he, he takes away the daily sacrifice, which is this day-by-day, morning-and-evening sacrifice, and then look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Could you imagine that? So who are you? I'm the prince of the wafers. 
Oh. <laughs> you mean like cookies or I mean <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> no, tea biscuits. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Um, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, he as God sitteth in the temple, showing himself that he is God. So that, that's... Part of this, uh, look at Matthew 24, same idea, same context, uh, Matthew 24, which we just taught on in Sunday school a week or so ago, however long that was. Matthew 24, and we'll read verse 15. <clears throat> and unto one he gave, uh, that's not it, verse Chapter 24, I'm in chapter 25, verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, that let them which are in Judea run, (laughs) get out. Uh, You need to flee. Don't wait, don't talk, don't plan, don't pack, go. You're in trouble. It's over. As soon as he sets himself up as God, he starts hunting. There is no more, we're just having a rough time because God is raining down judgment on the earth and, and we'll just kind of look out for each other. Now he's going after them. Covenant is broken. The abomination of desolation is set up in the temple. And now he's going to start hunting Jews and killing people. And, and uh, he's happy to do it. He does not care. He's, he's, he's going to be a ruthless killer. Um, and so you, so you have, it, it's interesting because the, the verse in Matthew, he says, when you shall see, all right? So the question in Matthew is, when is the time of the end and, and, and of your coming? When, you, when, when are you coming back? And so for 14 verses, Jesus says, these are not the times or the signs of my coming. Wars, rumors of wars, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation. He's like, this is the beginning of sorrows. Well, the beginning of sorrows happened in Genesis 3 when he told the woman, in sorrow, <laughs> you're going to give birth. He's, he's telling you, verses 1 through 14, this is the outworking of sin. That's why you have wars. That's why you have rumors of wars. That's why you have uh, famine, pestilence. That, that has existed since sin existed. None of that is a sign of my coming. But <laughs> when you see the, desolation, the, the abomination of desolation set up in the temple which is three and a half years into the tribulation, you know I'm coming in three and a half years. You want a sign? There it is. If you see that, you're in trouble. <laughs> and so, and, and, and then it just adds to the madness because people go, they, they, they go to Matthew and they say, oh, Russia's invading Ukraine. There's a sign of war. Rumors of wars. There's a war. There's, there's, there was an earthquake the other day. What have there not been earthquakes? You know, some disease is running through through the world and killing everybody. Yeah, like that's never happened before. As though it's a new thing. There's a famine, you know, in, in Somalia. They're hungry. They're always hungry in Somalia. When have they ever had enough food in Somalia? It's a desert wasteland, and it's not exactly managed in a good way. All right, so it, it, it just, 
These are not, the Lord is literally saying in Matthew 24, all of this, not signs of my coming. Don't look at that and think that's a sign of my coming. Now, the tribulation begins and those things ramp up and become intensified. Then he says, but when you see the desolation, the, the, the abomination of desolation, uh, I'm coming in three and a half years. <laughs> now you can know the sign of my coming. Because it's pretty much an objective fact, biblically speaking, that when the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple, in the temple and he shows himself as God, we just cross from tribulation to great tribulation. You have three and a half years. Don't die. Endure to the end. <laughs> Hope you make it. Now, for me, I'm going to be in heaven. I will have been raptured away before this covenant is made and before the tribulation begins, and I won't be here. I hope you join me. <laughs> Benjamin wants to go. <laughs> Amen. And so, um, it, it just it, and then you get to Acts chapter one, verse eight, and verses you know one verses six through eight, and they literally asked the Lord, "Can we have the kingdom now?" And He said, "It is not for you to know." And he literally says, it's not for you to know the signs or the times. And so people say, well, you can't know when Jesus is coming, but you can know the signs. No, you can't. A war is not a sign of Jesus coming. A war is a sign that sin is at work in the world. Famine is not a sign of the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a sign of, of sin. It's a sign of, of the creation groaning and waiting for the return of its creator. And, and, and that's all those things are. So uh, if you think Russia invading Ukraine is a sign of Jesus coming, <laughs> you're going to be sadly mistaken. It has nothing to do with it. All right, now verses 13 through 14. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that, that certain saint which spake, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And the saint said unto me, unto 2,300 days, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. All right. One saint, this seems to be a similar idea to Daniel 7. Uh, it says it's a saint. Um, I don't know of any... Any times that angels are called saints, typically that refers to either an Old Testament saint who is trusted in the Lord or a New Testament saint who has been born again through, the, through, the, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so it's an odd situation because he's talking to angels. And, and so maybe in the vision, there are two people there talking. And, and so he's calling them one saint talking to another saint. But um, uh, in Daniel 7, it was pretty clear he's talking to angels. In Daniel 8, he's talking to angels also, but suddenly these other two people show up and, and start talking to each other. And so he's asking them, or he's listening. He's, li he's even listening to their conversation. That's rude. Listen to other people's conversation. My wife is that rude. Huh? Uh, so you talking about my wife? <laughs> I'm talking about my wife. <laughs> I can't take her anywhere. And she's like, did you hear that? No, I didn't hear Hear what? I'm, she's sitting in front of me and listening to people at the table across the way. I'm like, what, you don't know those people or what they're talking about. Stop listening to them. And now my daughter does it. And my, but my daughter, my wife is slick about it. My daughter is like, 
What are they saying? What are they talking about? I was like, Bethany, <laughs> you're so loud. <laughs> Get out of people's business. So the, the transgression of desolation. All right, that, that's part of this question. Look at verse 14. And he said, under, or verse uh, uh, 13, that I heard one saint speaking and another saint said, man, that's a hard sentence to, <laughs> to say. Say it five times fast. Uh, anyway, he said unto that certain saint, whew, I heard one saint speaking and another saint said unto that certain saint, which spake. How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation? All right now, that, that's extremely important. All right, so that he used these words. All right, so this is what, Daniel 8, 13? Transgression of desolation. All right, now... Look at Daniel 9, verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with, uh, with many for one week. And in the, in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and, the determined, and, and that determined shall be uh, poured out. So Daniel... 9.27, he's going to make it desolate. All right. Desolation. All right. Daniel 11.31. 11 verse 31. And an arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice. Now, everybody see that? Repeatedly. They're taking away the sacrifice, and they're going to make desolate the, the temple. And they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Now, in all three so far, we have the sacrifice, and we have desolation. Daniel 11, what verse was that? 31. So again, it's going to be desolate, plus they take away the sacrifice. Verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. All right, so... There we are again, Daniel 12, Daniel 12, 11. It's going to be made desolate, and it's going to be the sacrifice taken away. And all of this happens, according to Daniel 9, according to Daniel 12, in the midst of the week, which is 3.5 years, halfway through. Okay, so why would this one be different in Daniel 8? I'll tell you why. Because 2,300 days is mentioned. (laughs) 
So we're going to make that different because I don't know what to do with the 2300 days. But in every other case, everybody knows this is talking about the middle of the tribulation, the daily sacrifice being taken away, and the abomination of desolation being set up in the temple. In every case, it's always, always the, the, um, the, the context. So, the, again, the 2300 days, some use uh, this to point back to Antiochus Epiphanes and that his um, desecrating the temple lasted 2300 days. The problem is there are no historical records that inform us when his terror on the temple began or when it ended. You would have no idea how long he he did what he did to the temple. It would be a total and complete guess. Um, Therefore, it would be nothing more than a guess to say that he desecrated the temple 2300 days. Furthermore, nothing else in the chapter regarding the little horn matches that of Antiochus Epiphanes. The only thing that fits with Antiochus Epiphanes is that he desecrated the temple. He, took, he, he stopped them from sacrificing and he desecrated the temple. But then they kicked him out. <laughs> Literally, they removed him and took over. And, and, and now you have first and second Maccabees in the Catholic Bible because the Maccabees revolted against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and, and so you get to read about it there and they get to pretend it's part of the Bible, but it's not. So, back to Daniel uh, 8, and let's read verses 15 and 16. And it came to pass when I, when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. I mean, that's pretty important. Um, Somebody sends Gabriel to tell Daniel what he needs to know in order to understand the vision. Uh, It's fairly significant. Uh, Daniel seeks to understand the vision just as he did in chapter 7. And again, his focus, as as we'll see when we go through this, his focus is on the Antichrist, not the information involving Persia or Grecia. The context of the chapter is, is the Antichrist and the time of the end. Furthermore, the vision gives us new information regarding the Antichrist. It does not repeat the previous information. The vision informs us where the Antichrist might ascend from. Now, one of the uh, arguments against this little horn being the Antichrist is they say, well, the information here doesn't match the information in chapter uh, (laughs) 7. Like, where did you get the idea that it had to give, it had to repeat the same information? It's, it's a progressive revelation. As you go from chapter 7 to chapter 8, it's giving you more information. It's not repeating the same information. The information in chapter 7 doesn't necessarily exactly fit 2 Thessalonians about the Antichrist. But it's still the Antichrist. And, and all of it together gives you a, a complete picture of who he is. And we'll talk about that some more in a few minutes. Uh, verses 17 through 19. Verse uh, 17. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end, the time of the end, everybody say that out loud, the time of the end shall be the vision. When is the vision? Not when Antiochus Epiphanes was, 
was king. It, it, and look, the, the, the events that we read about, about the he-goat and, and the ram, some of that took place exactly as God said it was going to. But some of it is yet future. And so you can't, you can't try and force all this back into that time frame and, and, and think that that makes sense. It doesn't make any sense. All right, so the vision is, is for the time of the end. Verse 18, now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face. Daniel fell asleep. He must have been a boring person to listen to. I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. This would be a wild thing to see. And he said, behold, I will make thee to know, know what shall be in the last days. You don't understand? I'm going to make you understand. <laughs> um, I, will, I will make thee to know or make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. What's the context again? The end. That's what we're talking about here. The end. Um, the interpretation of the vision begins with verse 15. The context is repeated when we get to verse 17 through 19, the time of the end and in the last time of the indignation and the end. This is always a reference to the end of the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. Certain parts of the vision were for the near future with reference to Daniel's time. But the point of, in, of interest in the passage is the little horn and the temple's desolation at the time of the end. Thus, Daniel was told to shut up the prophecy for many days. The end is a consistent theme in Daniel's visions. Therefore, we cannot violate the, rea the, the reality or violate that reality when attempting to interpret or expound the passage. Instead of violating the clear context, it is best to admit that we are unsure where, where to place something like the introduction of the 2300 days. Um, you know, th that, that is an important uh, principle of study. You can't throw away the entire clear, clear, clear context because of one little thing that you don't understand or you don't know what to do with or you don't know where it goes. Stay with the context. The context will be right. You just may not know what to do with this one little detail like a random number of 2,300 days. Um, and so anytime you're studying the Bible, and, and it, I know that you guys have been taught this as a clear principle. I just don't see it, not by, I'm not saying by you, I mean in general, the people, often the people who teach us these things don't abide by them. <laughs> you know, let's say, you know, the, uh, I don't remember how the, the saying goes. They have these little sayings that, that are supposed to encourage you to get the context and stay within the context. And then as soon as they find something in the chapter they don't understand, they break the context and make it something completely different. Just stay in the context and just say this little section here. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I'm praying that the Lord will show me. Hopefully he'll reveal it to me in time. But right now, I don't know what that is. Next verse, move on. But instead, they, they can't, you know, their, their egos can't admit, I can't say that. They'll think I can't teach the Bible. No, I'll think you're a human being. Like, what is the 2300 days? I don't know. <laughs> 
But I know that the context is the Antichrist and the time of the end, because he just said like 85,000 times in three verses, the end, the end, the end, the end. When is the vision? The end. When is this going to happen? The end. Not 2,000 years ago. It's future. Right? Now, uh, Grisha came and went. Persia came and went. But the Antichrist is going to come out of one of those four kingdoms. And it just so happens all four of those kingdoms exist today. Persia doesn't exist today. Persia's gone. Babylon doesn't exist today. There's a city called Babylon in Iraq, but, but Iraq is not Babylon. It's, it's where Babylon was. But those four kingdoms that the Antichrist is going to come out of, all four of them exist, and two of them have prophetic emphasis in the future, Syria and Egypt. And they're still around. So the Bible knows what it's talking about. Just get the context and stay there. Don't let anybody pull you out of the context. When they say, well, I think it's this, I say, yeah, but, but there's a context here. I mean, that doesn't fit this context. And if that doesn't fit this context, then that's not true. Don't let somebody take you outside what it, what it actually is, is trying to tell you. So anyways, hope all that makes sense. Verses 20 through 25. Let's read those. Verse 20. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grisha. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, Four kingdoms shall stand up out of, the, out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. He's obviously a powerful figure, but not powerful enough. It's just not going to work out for him. Uh, So... From Daniel 2 until now, this is interesting. Daniel had no indication who the empires were that would follow Nebuchadnezzar. Look at Daniel 7, it doesn't, t- it doesn't tell, tell us who those animals represent. And so in Daniel 2, all he knew was Babylon. We, we run the cross references to the latter chapters to find out who comes after. And the Bible tells us that Persia come, the Median Persian Empire comes after Babylon and Greece comes after them. But then it never tells us that Rome is coming. It just, they just show up and, and it's a reasonable assumption to make that that, that, that that fourth empire is Rome. And we have no idea really who the, who the fifth empire is with the ten kings out of whom the Antichrist will come. We know he's going to come out of that, but... Um, we don't know a whole lot, of, whole lot about who these people are. Uh, he knew from the image in Daniel 2 that four kingdoms would come. 
Then a fifth kingdom would follow, only to be broken by the sixth kingdom, which is Jesus Christ. He didn't learn of Persia and Grecia until Daniel 8. And this is about 65 years later. So he, he had the, the uh, visions of Daniel 2 uh, compared to Daniel 7. It was like 62 years. And here we are three years later, or is it two years? Three years. So we said in the beginning, three years later, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar uh, in the first year. So two years later, in the third year of, of Belshazzar's reign, and he's just now learning who the, that, that Persia and Greece are the two kingdoms that would follow. Um, the, the Bible never tells us directly that Rome would follow Grecia, but that, that again seems to be a reasonable implication since they, they did follow historically and they were there in the time that Jesus Christ died on the cross. It, it's a significant event. The historical explanation of the passage looks like this. The great horn is Alexander the Great, king of Grecia. He became the first king of Greece when he was 20 years old. He rapidly went to war, and Persia was his biggest enemy. He died in Babylon of marsh fever when he was 33. After his death, the political arguments fractured his kingdom into four. His top four generals took four territories of the Grecian kingdom. All right, so let me put these up here so you can see this. I'm running out of time. I don't want to reach the time of the end before, it's, before we're finished. So this, this first general is, these are, again, if you're anybody who wants to have children, these are some good names. To consider. All right. Monica, write these down. Especially this one. Gosander. You can call him Little Ghost for short. I could hear you. Gosander! <laughs> he took Macedonia. And the West. Next, you have, oh, you'll like this one. Lysim. Let me try to spell it right. I don't want you to write it down wrong. You need it for the birth certificate. Lysimachus. And he took Thrace and the North. And again, this is modern-day Turkey. Next is Seleucus. And uh, he took Syria and the East. And then there's Ptolemy, and he took Egypt and the West. All four territories were eventually absorbed into the Roman Empire. All of them were taken over by Rome. 
And, and so, again, when we talk about the historical uh, information, it, it's a historical fact that as, uh, as Grisha fell apart and became weak and fractured, Rome just, just naturally just took it over. They basically just walked in and took it over. It was, it was not, once these four took over, I mean, these four served together under Alexander, had these great battles, did these incredible things. As soon as Alexander's gone, they hate each other and begin fighting each other constantly. Went to war with each other. Yes, sir. That general, Ptolemy, also took the West. He took, yeah, e- Egypt is in the West. So he took Egypt and whatever Western territories there were. Even the other one. Oh, I see. Uh, what did I do there? No, I think the one at the top took... Hold on, let me see what I did here. Oh, Egypt is the south. So anything, when I, when I say the west, he took any western territory that was near Macedonia, he took it. Any northern territory near Thrace, he took it. Any eastern, he took it. And southern, he took it. So the primary country or area was Egypt, Syria, Thrace, Macedonia. But then there may have been some outlying uh, territories in those areas, and so that that particular general would have taken it. Um, the Great Horn is is Alexander. Now we come back down here. All four territories eventually absorbed in the Roman Empire. Rome passed off the scene and then began the time period known as the Church Age, um, and it was actually the death of Christ, not necessarily Rome passing off the scene, uh, but Rome became irrelevant once the Church Age began. The Church will ultimately be raptured and the fifth kingdom will be revealed. Now, without the help of the interpretation, we would suppose the Antichrist would rise uh, when the four horns were reigning on the earth. So if we didn't have the explanation, we would be looking for these four kings and asking, where's the Antichrist? But these kingdoms came and went. But that's not the idea. In the time of the end, he will come from one of these four that were under Alexander the Great. So you had Alexander, who was king of Grecia, and he, he was over all of this. And so the Antichrist, the point of the chapter is that the Antichrist will come from one of these four. But of course, we know from chapter 11, it, it's going to be Syria. But the interpretation tells us from, from, what, uh, from what previous empire he will come and that he will arise at the time of the end. So, so they're giving us, they're telling us he's going to come from Alexander's empire. He told us it was fractured into four. Here are the four. And that he's going to come out of one of these, this one here, at the end. All right, so... What we should be looking for are, is, is 10 kings or 10 kingdoms. And one king is going to rise out of those 10 kingdoms. You can actually even break it down to four because in this chapter, it becomes more specific. And, and when he comes out, it's going to be from Syria. So this is 
the future event other than the rapture we should be looking for. Um, there's really nothing else that, that we should be looking for in terms of future events that are going to take place as far as we go. If you start seeing you know, a, a unified ten kingdoms in and around the Middle East and the northern part of the Middle East, from, from Egypt, uh, Syria, over to what was Macedonia, all the way up to Thrace, Turkey, and, and that whole region, they start uniting together against Israel, and there's 10 of them, that might be something significant to look for. Um, then at some point, it'll be narrowed down to the four, and out of the four, that, that one king is going to come from Syria. And that one king is the Antichrist. Um, considering the current status of the four kingdoms, after Alexander's death, Macedonia... Thrace, Syria, and Egypt all exist today in some form, which is amazing after all they've been through. And Macedonia and Thrace completely ceased to exist. Syria has been back and forth under the the control of Rome and and Greece and all sorts of different people. Egypt has been back and forth under control of Rome and Greece and other other, uh, Muhammad and even Syria under, under Muhammad. And somehow they maintained their name and their identity. And then Macedonia and Thrace came back and chose those names. That, that's awfully interesting. And they're in the region and territory of where they previously existed, though it's not the, it doesn't encompass the entire. Uh, Macedonia now is a tiny little country. It used to be huge. Uh, I mean, it, it, would take, it would take all of Greece, some of Turkey. You know, it, it was a massive uh, country. So after losing their identities and existence for some time, all four have returned to existence and taken the same names. That, that's pretty incredible. The little horn, the information given about the little horn in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 will be used together. They complement one another as a progressive revelation. The information provided when combined give us a more complete profile of the Antichrist. They're not different individuals, but different information about one individual placed here, uh, placed here a little and there a little. That's the whole point is to build the profile of who the Antichrist is. To get a complete profile of the Antichrist in Daniel, we have to create an overview of the little horn of Daniel 7, the little horn of Daniel 8, and the willful king of Daniel 11. And those are in Daniel 7, 19 through 26. We don't have time to go read them, but I, I can guess why you might want these, cross, these references. 23 through 25. And then Daniel 11, 36 through 39. The little horn will arise out of the ten horns of the fourth beast in Daniel 7 or the fifth beast of Daniel 2. Four of these ten kingdoms may have been previously part of Alexander's kingdom. In Daniel 7, he comes from ten kingdoms, but in Daniel 8, it's narrowed down to four. It becomes more specific. 
The Antichrist will arise out of one of these four. Daniel 11 and Isaiah point us to the Assyrian or the Syrian kingdom. The willful king who represents the Antichrist in Daniel 11 is from the north, which is Syria. And that's in Daniel 11, 36 through 45. He will be a king of fierce countenance who understands dark sentences. He will also stand against the prince of princes, Jesus Christ. He will bring his transgression to the full and be broken without hand. And of course, you can read more about that in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 and Daniel 2.34-35 when it talks about that stone being cut out without hands, smashing the Gentile powers. And uh, that would be Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 26 and 27 real fast, and we are done. And the vision of the evening and the morning, uh, which was told, is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision but none understood it. Welcome to the party. <laughs> now, this is amazing to me. Let me ask you. We haven't done any preaching in these past few chapters. Not a whole lot to preach on other than just trying to get you the facts and the information. Does the Word of God deal with you that way? Can you be stirred by the Word of God to the point that it brings you to your knees? That you're weak, you're concerned, you desperately want to understand it? Or do you just blow right through it to get information, to be able to go out and beat people over the head with on the street? Daniel was broken over this information. When was the last time the Word of God broke you? Does it matter to you what it says? Does it have any impact on you? They have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Does that mean anything to you? So it's fun to study. It's fun to look at. It's fun to go through. It's fun to know. It's exciting. It's incredible. But what does it do for you ultimately? We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.